before you stick this in your ears. Know this. The content presented in this show is designed for a mature audience with a functioning sense of humor. If you are not an adult, are easily offended, or take life too seriously, this is not the show for you. For everyone else... Hello. Let's go for a ride. Welcome to the Ninth Story Podcast for episode number 26. If you were with us last week, we had special guest John Russo in the studio. He's the creator of The Modern Zombie, the screenwriter for The Night of the Living Dead, and just recently released a book called Dealey Plaza. That's a great read. If you haven't gotten your copy, you should pick one up today. You can get that over at Burning Ball Publishing. You can get it directly from John's site. There's a link over to the book, and of course, you can find it on Amazon. And while we're on the subject of Burning Ball Publishing, I just want to give a shout out and thanks to Rich Bottles Jr. and Gary Vincent over at Burning Ball for getting in touch with John for me. I was on a vacation down in Texas and taking some pictures of Dealey Plaza and Rich saw the pictures being posted up to Facebook and he's like, hey, you know who you need to talk to? John Russo. He just wrote a book on Dealey Plaza. And of course, Craig and I jumped at the opportunity to talk with John. So again, many thanks to Rich, who was a prior guest on the show, and Gary Vincent uh, for making that happen for us. We certainly appreciate your support of the show. I'd also like to ask everyone listening to the show to please go over to iTunes and rate the show. Your good rating on each episode and the show in general helps us get sponsorships, attract great guests. It helps us out a lot. Regardless of whether you're listening in Stitcher or Zoom or directly from our website, please help us out. Go over to iTunes and give us a rating. It'll mean a lot to us. While you're at it, stop by our website. Subscribe to the show if you haven't already. It's ninthstory.com. You can subscribe right from our website. That's the number nine, T-H-S-T-O-R-Y.com. And you can also find us if you're an iTunes user. We're in the iTunes directory. We're in Zune and we are in Stitcher. But we're going to sound better if you listen to us through iTunes, Zune, directly through the website. Or my favorite application, because I'm an Android user, is the Beyond Pod application. And also I wanted to make sure you guys know we have a second show out there if you guys like stories called Story Radio. It's S-T-R-Y Radio at stryradio.com and on iTunes as well as in SoundCloud. So if you're a SoundCloud user, an iTunes user, you can find the show that way. We have something special coming up for the first week of June on 
stryradio.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our second part with John Russo. Don't forget to visit him over at johnrussoentertainment.com. Check the show notes for more links and details. Here we go. Today, we're very excited. We have a special guest in the studio, the creator of The Modern Zombie, and author, actor, director. What haven't you done? Singing? I've done singing. Yeah. So you've you've done it all. (laughs) Yeah. I Uh, used to sing in a group in high school and college, and uh, I wrote and directed a movie with Chuck Corby, who's a world-class soul singer and from Pittsburgh, and the movie is The Mob Boss and the Soul Singer, and... I had to produce the CD because there's there's a lot of music in the movie. It's a gangster movie, but with a lot of music. And then I suggested to Chuck he ought to do Chuck Corby Sings the Mob Hits. I produced that, and while I was at it, I recorded three songs myself and put them together on a CD called John Russo's Movie Music. And it, it's available on my Shopify store. You can go to my website, johnrussoentertainment.com, and it will take you to the merchandise section. It's called johnrussosautographcollectibles.com. Okay. And then you can buy the CD if you want to. You can buy Corby's CDs and mine. Awesome. So what songs did you sing on the album? I sang Softly, and uh, I sang a couple of Chris Christopherson songs. Oh, yeah? Uh, Loving Her Was Easier Mm -hmm. and uh, for, For the Good Times. And I got good reviews. <laughs> well, that's excellent. Yeah. Well, you have a musician next to you. Mr. Oh, Weber yeah. is, uh, is a uh, guitarist <clears throat> and into music. Um, I'm more into to movies, but I mm-hmm. still enjoy music. Mm-hmm. I use it uh, when I'm writing as, as inspiration to you know get me through a tough scene or to mm-hmm. get me in the right frame of mind for a scene. One of the phrases that I've always heard is, when we first start writing and we first start making things creatively, that we tend to emulate, and mm-hmm. then you find your own voice. When you started out, do you feel, I'm not talking about Night of the Living Dead, because that Mm -hmm. was wildly inventive and a completely new direction for the genre. But when you first started writing, when you first got the writing bug, did you feel that you were heavily influenced by certain folks? At different times. Yeah, I I mean, the first, I wanted to write mysteries starting out, and I started messing around with it in high school. Mm -hmm. And I always had writing talent, and that was recognized by my teachers and so on. Yeah. And then I knew that I had that, but I didn't have the craft or the discipline. Nobody does when you start. <laughs> I so, but that. I wrote a short story that was a kind of a mystery, and I don't think I borrowed from anyone consciously. Mm-hmm. But later, I um, one of my favorite writers was Norman Mailer, and I read just mm-hmm. about everything he ever wrote. Yeah. I've read everything just about that Mark Twain ever ever wrote, and those were big influences. Yeah. I wrote some stuff almost in the style of Norman Mailer. I don't know if it's like imitative. I didn't feel like I was imitating. I was I was trying to explore my own psyche the way he explored his psyche right. in advertisements for myself. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't copying him because it was my own psyche. Right. It's <laughs> you, just kind of you like know you that saw I was him. mining. Yeah. And uh, who can imitate Norman Mailer? I mean, his IQ had to be around 190. And I mean, he was one of the most articulate and supreme and extreme user of the English language in all its forms, you know? Yeah. I, I read a book or two a week, you know, and I've done that for years and years. 
But when I wanted to write mysteries, then I immersed myself in that. I read a hell of a lot of mysteries. Mm-hmm. But I didn't imitate them. What I did was try to learn from them. Right. Like Ross MacDonald uh, had a knack of writing uh, mysteries. The root of the crime and the events in the novel were always they were always rooted in the past. Mm-hmm. And so I've written some mysteries where the root of the of the crime is in the past, but I don't try to imitate his style or anything. Yeah. Like, yeah, the, like that. I think that's what Stephen King calls filling the well. It's kind of <clears> like <throat> you have all that information in there. Yeah. You know, Hemingway said every good novel is a mystery. Right. Yes. Yeah. And he also said that there should be something that the writer knows that the reader doesn't know. Right. And like in Sun Also Rises, you know, Jake's balls were blown off in the war and he doesn't come out and tell you Jake's balls were blown off in the war. (laughs) But uh, behind, that's that's the secret behind the way Jake acts and does everything. Yeah, does things. Yeah. And um, and so all my stuff does have an element of mystery, the horror novels and and so on so that's a question if you guys don't mind i'm yeah. gonna ask this because because john dan and i always we talk about this on air and, and off air i find this particularly compelling particularly when we're talking about the mystery and it sounds like that's what first propelled you into writing and the thing that i struggle with when i try to write is i always want to have the ending in mind and i write backwards and dan says no i do it the other way around I just start mm-hmm. writing. I don't have an end in mind. And I just was interested in your philosophy, particularly if you say, and, and I agree <clears> with you completely, that every every novel should be a mystery. How do you write? I presume maybe everything is project-based well, or idea-based. And- a lot of the things I do are outlined first, mm-hmm. and I have an idea where it's going. It might change as, as I go along. Or so it's kind of like I, having a roadmap and... You're driving yeah, at night but it, and you I can mean, only see so far successful ahead. Successful writers work both ways in, in, in every which way. Yeah. yeah. So I wouldn't be hung up on trying to do it a certain way. Yeah. And I, I'm not hung up on that because different projects evolve well, that's why different you're ways and they <laughs> originate different ways. Right. And, you know, so. Now, did you, you, you're an English major, obviously. Mm-hmm. What was the most important thing that you learned in college that maybe changed you or changed the way you wrote? Actually, I had a 10th grade English teacher who really helped me hone and polish my writing, and we didn't write anything longer than paragraphs. Mm. But she was very patient, Miss Collins. Uh, And I was in the college prep course, and I was always in with all the brightest kids in the school. So the whole class was bright, and a lot of them could write, and so on and so on. But she took a special liking to me, Mm -hmm. and she... I mean, she might say, well, describe an oak tree, and you'd write a paragraph, and then she'd sit there and show you how to take out overly flowery stuff and how Mm -hmm. to hone it down to its hard-hitting essence. Yeah. So that was a big influence, and everybody should learn that, by the way. (laughs) And there's a great, my agent later put me onto a, you ever hear of Strunk and White? Yeah, uh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a very good thing, and yeah, that's its whole. Got a copy right there. That's kind of its essence. Yeah. The elements you know, of style, right? The elements of style, right? Yeah. I couldn't think of the title right away, but and uh, I'm trying to think um, as far as English literature. I mean, it, it, uh, we didn't go much farther than writing themes mm-hmm. and taking a journalism course and writing newspaper articles and so on and so on. And I don't. I don't remember, uh, you know, taking in 
British literature or American literature, the things I read influencing me to do things a certain way. Yeah. I just don't remember that that was a, a thing. So it was more that it was more your 10th grade teacher. And it's, it's funny you say that because for me, it was uh, Amy Mercaldi, who was my 11th mm-hmm. grade writing teacher. And out of everyone in my life, in terms of writing, she's the one that influenced me the most. But I'm saying Miss Collins, as far as honing and polishing my yeah. style and knowing that it had to be succinct and stripped yes. away and right to the point and and, the, and that the flowery kind of stuff, the overuse of adjectives and all that is not yeah. productive. It's just <laughs> it's counterproductive in a yeah. way. But that, and uh, but then, I mean, I mean, I've read and read and read. I read a lot of Hemingway and Mailer and all those great mystery writers. And just forever, I read every, you know, lots and lots of stuff. And so you just have to read, 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 write, write, write. Yeah. <laughs> like everybody says, it's true. One of the things I learned from Mailer, you know, right away in The Naked and the Dead, there's a uh, lieutenant, which I forget his name, and a general, and they have an intense intellectual dialogue about the war and why they're there and every other subject that I don't even remember that. (laughs) I mean, I read it when I was maybe 20. The relationship between those people, it's so believable, so real, and so engrossing. You're all caught up in it and what's really going to happen between these two people. Right. And then the, the lieutenant's out on patrol, takes a bullet in the chest, and he's dead. So... That kind of shock and that kind of, um, you know, in essence, just showing you no matter what our concerns are as human beings, and you can be taken out at any moment. Yeah, the, the audience Which is reading. Which might have had something to do with why I suggested that uh, the Ben character in Night of the Living Dead should be the one who gets killed by accident. <laughs> I mean, That's that was cool. part of it. Yeah. The other thing I said, you know, Pennsylvania is a big deer hunting state, and every year... <laughs> Three or four hundred thousand deer are killed, yeah. and ten or twelve hunters. And it wouldn't it be ironic if, you know, if Ben were the one. Yeah. So, uh, but we were out to shock people, and we were out to be iconoclastic, and so on. I think you have to. Night of the Living people. Dead, by the way, has a terrific element of mystery about it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The way it unfolds. Absolutely. Some of that was accidental because George Romero and I were working on the script together. As yeah. It turned out. And and, by, and I'm doing a webinar by the but you might know about it for the uh, writers store. Oh really? May no, twelfth, and that. it's called How to Write a Great Horror Script. Oh yeah, P- please tell. Call and yeah. amp up the shocks. Yeah, and it's you can sign up for it at the writers store. Okay, and it's one o'clock on May twelfth, and the reason that came to mind is that I'm going to talk about the evolution of the Night of the Living Dead script. So, oh awesome. You know, so I'll say a few words about that now, but yeah, you don't want to give it away because I want because it's such a good lesson for people. Because first of all, people who tune into the webinar probably have seen the movie, so then they have the proper frame of reference. But uh, I mean, the way the way the thing happened was that George and I were the two writers of our group, and you know, we were also the ones that usually stayed latest at the studio and slept on the floor and all that stuff. You know, I said to George that whatever we do ought to start in a cemetery because people find cemetery spooky even right. in Abbott and Costello meet uh, Dracula, you know. it's I love that, but, uh, the way that it starts. I was working on a on a story. It did open in a cemetery, and it, it was, uh, but aliens come to 
earth in search of human flesh. Nice. Except this kid's running away from home because of an argument with his parents, and he steps into a pane of glass and falls, and you see what's under the glass. It's a rotting corpse. Oh, wow. So he, there was a field of rotting corpses because these aliens liked their meat a little rotted, just like uh, in the Middle Ages. They, right. You know, a little more kill tender. a turkey or something and hang it up to rot right. for a while, and that's how they liked it. So in the middle of that, George went away just before Christmas. He, I didn't see him for a weekend. He came back with a part of a story, which ended up being the beginning of Night of the Living Dead. But I, mm. I, he had that it started in a cemetery, and somebody was chasing the girl, and you know, cracked Johnny's head on the tombstone and all that. Yeah. And she ran into the house, and he had taken it in in story form, all pretty much up to where the people in the basement come out. Okay. And I said, well, you know, George, this is good. It has all the right twists and turns and suspense, but who are these attackers? You don't say. <laughs> and he said he didn't know. Yeah. And that's where you came in. I said, well, it seems to me they could be dead people. He said, that's good. And I said, well, but what are they after? You don't say that either. He said, I don't know. And I said, why don't we use my flesh-eating idea? So that's how they became dead people in search of human flesh and they don't you don't have Night of the Living Dead or anything that came after yeah, without those without two that. ideas so I get a little annoyed sometimes when George doesn't admit that that's what I <laughs> well, <laughs> he was in Birth of the Birth of the Living Dead and I watched that documentary in, in, in St. Louis where I was given a lecture at yeah. Webster University and and he says well it didn't really work till I thought of making them dead people and I, <laughs> I said, yeah, you thought of it after I told you. <laughs> that helps a little bit. But but the thing is, he was ripping off I Am Legend, and I didn't know it because uh, I never read I Am Legend. Yeah. So he was, I think he quit, must have quit writing because he couldn't say they were vampires, right? Because right, right. I think I Am Legend dealt with vampires. I haven't read it to this day. I don't want to now because right. at least I can say. You can say you never read it, right? Yeah. Right, right. So so then, uh, you know, we had some script meetings and things like that, and uh, other people contributed some ideas, and I took the whole mess and put his, rewrote his his beginning and put it in screenplay form, and then I wrote this, most of this second half of the screenplay I wrote myself. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the mystery comes in, <clears throat> when I say almost by accident, mm-hmm. Because George was withholding information because he didn't want to blow it by <laughs> saying what they were too early because he didn't want them to be vampires and he's holding that back, right? So you yeah. you actually, okay, who's chasing the girl? Could be, the mystery is it's in a cemetery. Mm-hmm. It could be a dead person. It could be a deranged person. Yeah, It could be anything. Then they're... She runs toward the house, and now there are two of them. And we still don't know what who they are because he's not saying. And I kept that in, you yeah. know, even after we decided they'd be dead people. I, you don't, you don't find out that they're that they're probably dead people, and that they're actually devouring human flesh until Judy O'Day's knocked out and laid out on the couch, right? And the radio's blasting. That's the first time you find out that human flesh is being right you do see the lady at the top of the stairs the chewed up head up there yeah you know so but you but it's still not explicitly revealed revealed yeah. so that's why i say almost by accident that part of the mystery got into the script yeah 
you know. So it wasn't like, uh, like uh, you know, some of the films, oh, here comes a zombie, you know, yeah, <laughs> at, exactly. at the opening of, of the thing. And, and also, um, you know, there, there's a logic to the script, and that was all painstakingly worked out, even the stuff that, that happened uh, in, in script meetings that other people contributed or we beat ideas around or mm-hmm. like like whether to bring Johnny back and could he come back would his brain have been totally killed by the bash against the tombstone and mm-hmm. you know, we we wanted uh, once people accepted the outlandish premise mm-hmm. <laughs> that the dead could come back and would want human flesh then right. then we wanted uh, all the motivations and we wanted people to behave like real people would yeah. if such a thing happened but you don't see any flesh being devoured until the young couple is blown up in mm-hmm. the truck. And the reasoning there was, well, we made the point they're dead and they're weak. Right. And their strength is in numbers. And how in the hell are they going to tear into intestines or tear people's arms off or anything? Yeah. You know, well, the rationale was that once they're blown up and roasted yeah. in that truck, then logically the zombies could you know they're already torn apart and, yeah you know and, it's and, funny and too because so, so people don't think about that but we did right and, uh, <laughs> and so i think i think it uh but but they don't have any cause to think about it that's true like, we didn't give them uh, we didn't want to give them any reason to suspend uh you know, not to dispense, suspend disbelief. Yeah. So, so everything was worked out logically to the best of our ability. Yeah. All the motivations are logical, and the things that happen are logical. And yeah, part of the secret to the success of the movie. Yeah, it's it's surprisingly hard to break flesh, mm-hmm. like you're saying, to get into the intestines and and that sort of thing would be quite difficult. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. And, and now it's almost they're into the supernatural. I mean, Dan O'Bannon came along and they're after brains. Well, we were, you know, Night of the Living Dead Live. Have you heard of the stage play? I have heard of it, yes. And, I haven't uh, seen it, but I've heard of it, Well, yes. we were, it, we have an agent now who's taking it national. And oh, so really? It, it will, but a lot of the theaters, it, it'll start happening in a bigger way in 2015 because they book so far ahead what right, productions right. they're going to do. But casting. We and actually, in the Broadway, Toronto Broadway Awards and Les Mis was part of that and mm. other major, major, you know, well-known plays. And we won Best Actor in a Play, Best Actress in a Play, Best wow. Director, Best Ensemble Cast, and Best Play. Very nice. <laughs> so that's, that's cool. pretty great. And then we got a big-time agent in Toronto. But anyway, we were there uh, doing Q&A, me and uh, Russ Streiner and, and George, mm-hmm. uh, hosted by Chris Alexander, who's the editor of Fangoria. I think that's cool that you guys. And he are did still... a great job. So, well, we're the executive producers of it. Yeah. And, uh, but somebody brought up the subject of brains and Return of the Living Dead, and George said that he thought it didn't make any sense. That uh, you know, how could these zombies? They'd have to crack a human skull like a walnut and get at the brains. And right. I said, but George, it worked. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, people it's, loved it. Yeah, they ate it, it up. The movie was Literally. a big hit, and part two was a big hit, and now it's into ten sequels. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so you know, <laughs> I and I did say what I just said earlier that they are now supernatural for yeah. all intents and purposes. Yeah. Even in George's films, what's he talking about? I mean, they dig right into the yeah. the bodies and pull out the guts and every other thing. So, 
you know, in, in the brains thing and people just cracked up over it. So I think now it's just its own phenomenon and it can go so many different ways. Well, it's, it's and funny. I just say, well, if you can make it work, fast yeah. zombies, yeah. slow zombies, whatever, if you've got the <laughs> rationale for it yeah. and it works more power to you so yeah. I'm not a, a some kind of purist I have t-shirts coming out though they're I haven't got them made yet but I have the design and it's uh it's me as a zombie it's that's that shot in a cemetery and, right uh, and it just has the slogan slow zombies hate fast food <laughs> that's funny I like that and um that's awesome you have to have fun with it and you you have to be good <laughs> you, know, yeah. you have to be creative and you have to write a good script and do make a good movie and you know i i think that uh, i mean there's about a billion things you just said there in the last 10 minutes that i'd have questions on so mm -hmm. uh, um the, the 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 one thing is um the suspension of disbelief mm -hmm. you know as it relates to the zombie in general because you created that genre Essentially, right? Am I? Yeah, I'm not overstating that, right? I mean, you really. Did. I don't think you're overstating yeah, it because I, I came up with it, right? Yeah. It, you it, know, it, I, it, I don't. Re I never saw anything like that before. There may have been, and, and I don't think I'm there is. That's the it. thing. I mean, we we I've dug and I've checked mm -hmm. it out, but everything goes back to you know Night of the Living Dead, and you're you know you're the screenwriter on that. Mm -hmm. So I mean, hey, thank you. Uh, so well, so first and foremost, my, my for, pleasure. Right, I'm thanks here. for creating that genre. But you know, as a fan of horror, you know, over the years, people they're they're willing to suspend their disbelief only so far. You know, when with the mm -hmm. Jason Voorhees and the Michael Myers and all of the you know the franchise horror films that are out there, you're you're only willing to stick with it so much. The zombie is, as you said, they've almost become this whole thing. This, They're supernatural. People are just willing. They're always going to jump onto, hey, the next zombie film that comes out. But you created that. Mm -hmm. And that's, and and I just had a question. Does the word zombie ever appear in the film? No, we, we call them ghouls and yeah. that, that's what they were. Not every zombie is a ghoul. To be a ghoul, you have to eat human flesh. Yeah. You know, but I I always say that, that Zombies weren't heavyweight fright material. I'm quoting myself here. I've said it so many times. Like werewolves, not and, in 1968, and vampires, anyway, right? And, uh, yeah. No, I mean the zombie just shambled around through somebody against the wall, tried to strangle somebody, and they never scared me. Mm. As a kid, I wasn't that interested in them. But when we made them flesh eaters. That yeah. touched an atavistic chord in people because you know we were prey for most of our existence and yeah, still are if we get in the wrong place. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the serial killer genre, I think that worked because people were deathly afraid of uh, serial killers and 75% mm. of the serial killers of the world live in America. Yeah. yeah. Well, that sure. means we're doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but the, I, I mean, mean, the, the, the magic... How, how goofy it's... Yeah. it's you know, the, the magic of that can only be sustained for so long. I think one of the things, and the, again, I'm a complete amateur, you know, in, in this regard. But one of the things that I think was so compelling about Night of the Living Dead is, like you said earlier, it's a mystery. You know, any more screenwriter, mm -hmm. they beat you over the head in the first 10 minutes of the movie. And like, this is what it is. And I think that's where Ebert got that quote about it's a monster in a house. Everybody knows what it is. There's no mystery. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a body count. There's going to be a gratuitous sex scene every seven minutes, a gratuitous violence scene every seven minutes. And it's formulaic. Mm -hmm. Even I was born in 1968. So 45 years later, and I just watched it the other night. Night of the Living Dead still stands the test of time because mm -hmm. even though you've seen it, that movie scares you because it's a mystery. 
it and and the thing is, I wanted to tell you, and I wanted to ask you the question. <clears throat> the thing that scares the hell out of me in that movie is the thing that still scares me this day that you're only getting news through the radio and through the tele, you know, mm -hmm. and that scares you. Like it's, you know, when you lose the electricity and the only thing that you have to rely upon is reports coming through the radio, there's something guttural and visceral about that. Was was that your idea or was that, because that's scary. It's still scary. Uh, well, we knew, <laughs> you know, we had to find, we had to convey the, to the, to the viewer that this thing wasn't just happening in this yeah. isolated farmhouse, it was happening all over. All over, the, right. Place. Which I did you know, not to we jump mostly into. said it happened was happening in the eastern. Well, part, you know what I think is funny, not to interrupt you, but uh, there's that quote in there where it's like the newscaster says Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and Miami. You know, I'm like I don't from, remember from that, a geographic perspective. You know, they jumped mm -hmm. across. You know, yeah, anyway, but. but so we did that by means of the television yeah. and the uh, and the radio. But again, you know, the twists and turns of the story and the, well, being a low budget movie. You get these surprises at the right intervals, you mm -hmm. know. First, there's one guy that you don't know what he is or who he is, but he attacks them. Then there's two of them. Then there's more of them. Then this about 20 minutes in is when Ben shows up yeah. and what's he all about. Mm -hmm. And now things happen. Now he's able to beat down two of them. And then he gets me when I come in the back door with a tire <laughs> in the head. And then you learn, you know, then then there's people in the basement yeah. that come up. Mm. And uh, and so, and then, there, then there's a little girl bitten. Now what's going to happen with her? So right. you have, you have a, 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 a um, of somebody becoming a zombie right in the midst of the people while they're fighting fighting for their lives and there was something I left out that I can't think what it was <clears throat> but Sam Raimi did that a great thing with that in The Evil Dead where you've got the zombie that's under the trap door and the trap door has a chain on it but the door won't completely close and so that zombie keeps trying to get out in the midst of everything and you can see its hands and you can see a crack yeah you know in the 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 open door and, and so that that's a that's a good device for 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 ongoing suspense in, in in the evil dead and he probably you know transmuted that idea from the girl in the basement to mm -hmm. you know and that's fair game i mean that's you know oh i need some element like that where people are constantly threatened even if they don't know they're threatened yeah. right you know so so yeah, it goes back to the the whole monomyth, uh, Joe Campbell, and you know mm -hmm. the 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 hero's quest, and the fact that we're basically dealing with three storylines, and it's all in how you use those elements mm -hmm. creatively to tell your your story. Now, Craig, you had um, well, the other thing too is that you know just to go before you ask me that question, yeah. Dan, kind of going back to what you said there, John, the one of the scariest things in any story is the complete randomness of yes and the yes. randomness of violence like you said in the, mm -hmm. the mailer tale you think that's you're what, safe that's what scares people yeah and yeah and that's how you really build suspense and, and whatnot um but but i think that's the thing that i find compelling about what you just said about the hey the person in the basement who knows how are we going to contend with this and mm -hmm. you know that's those i think that's one of the things about the way zombie tales are told to even to this day it's that's what people hold on to. Again, the serial killer, the mm -hmm. monster in the house, the supernatural thing. People can stick with that for so long. 
zombies still resonate with people. It always will. And it kind of goes back to the thing about, you know, the, the philosophical mind-body problem that, hey, once the mind dies and the body's still alive, how do we deal with that? And that's really, mm -hmm. that's real stuff. And that still scares the hell out of us. <laughs> yeah, that's the scariest thing for me is that it looks like your friend. Yeah. It used to be your friend. You have this emotional mm -hmm. attachment to it, and it's not anymore. Right. And, and that seems to be... I mean, they, they focus on that in a lot of zombie movies, and I, I honestly think that that's the right thing to focus on because if Craig was a zombie, I would have a hard time with it. What am mm -hmm. I going to do? Am I going to kill the guy? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and what Dan and Is I he talking, in there somewhere? Yeah, we were talking about this last week, John. Um, it's it's your great line. Um, and I don't know if you've read any of the books. Like, um, And it was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. You know, there's all these philosophical books out there about zombies and whatnot and the mind-body problem and, and, and all this stuff. And you know, I'm sure you've seen that the, the undead and philosophy and all these these books are out there. Everybody, I, I, I don't, I haven't read any. A lot of things come back to, to your great line about they're just dead flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that and that creates a philosophical question for a lot of people to say, wow, John Russo was so insightful at that point. Or, well, you know, that's, and that's why what, the authorities are trying to, yeah. uh, you know, get people to get rid of their attachment and realize they're, they're just dead flesh and dangerous and you better forego the dubious comfort of a funeral ceremony and, and, and that's all the that, line so. see that's that's awesome you, yeah, yeah i mean you know yeah <laughs> obviously I mean, you know your own work <laughs> the other thing about uh, one thing about night of the living dead too is uh um it's it's a uh, it, it later i thought well well night of the living dead is is, is kind of like stagecoach with uh, zombies instead of indians you know one of the things I want to get across in the webinar, for example, is a lot of beginning writers don't realize that the theme of, of something has to come first. What is it really about? And it's not about people fending off zombies. It's really about, you know, the, the issue or the theme of Night of the Living Dead or Stagecoach. Are people going to overcome their, their pettiness and their, their animosities toward one another and ego problems and whatever and prevail over this threat, or are they going to uh, let their failings destroy them? That's that's the question yeah. in Stagecoach or Night of the Living Dead or Zulu or whatever. Well, it, yeah, I remember. So, when... so, what, so if you come up with a the theme first, what's yeah. your... What's your main idea? What are you, what are you really writing about? What 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 is it that you want to get across to people? Or what do you want? What do you want to say about this particular issue about you know the indomitability of the human spirit? Somebody said, but then your characters flow from that. Well, then what characters are best able to uh, to uh, to uh, illustrate these points or? or to epitomize the conflict, the dramatic uh, tension that you need to have in a story. You know, they can't all be the same. So mm -hmm. in Night of the Living Dead, you have the hero, Ben. He's the take charge kind of guy. You got, uh, you know, the Harry, who, who's, who's a blowhard and a weak and a, and a, and a scaredy cat. <laughs> then you got the wife, you got the marriage that you know, is obviously not all it should be. You yeah. got the wounded kid mm -hmm. and the, gir the girl who's 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 uh, out of it. <laughs> and then you got the young couple. You know, you have all good types to, to, to have this with, yeah. dramatic conflict. And then what's going to happen in, in script discussions? Uh, and you asked earlier, well, Night of the Living Dead had a lot to do with me finding myself as a writer because, well, I got derailed in the movie business making commercials and every other thing. <laughs> 
and and then and so I've got away from from my creative writing a lot and didn't have time for it and then yeah. but in night of the living dead you know I learned that I had a particular knack for that for for story structure plot and and all those kinds of elements that other people didn't have because it would get down to well they're going to escape and then I would take charge and George wasn't saying much at all <laughs> and I think because he was out of gas and because he was doing I Am Legend right. you know and I kind of bailed him out because I said okay they have to escape oh, that's they funny. have to try to escape they've been told they're going to be told where the rescue stations are the TV has to t- urge them to escape because yeah. the movie would be over in 45 minutes if they don't try to escape. Yeah. But the escape can't succeed or again the movie would be over. Exactly. So, so what's likely to happen? You yeah. have these people they're going to fu- come up with Molotov cocktails. They're going to make a plan and what can possibly go wrong? You got weak zombies but they're strong in numbers. Mm-hmm. You know Harry is probably going to screw up yeah. somehow yeah. because he's a coward. Yeah. So when the truck catches on fire, mm-hmm. then then ha- what's Harry going to do? He he panics, runs down, locks the door, and you know Ben can't get in. Well, then what's Ben going to do if that happens? If he does get in, he's going to kick Harry's ass. <laughs> so you know one. So it's 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 uh, you know we tell our filmmaking students, and I tell anybody that I'm talking about creative writing. Mm-hmm. It's problem solving, yeah. but the yeah. problem has to be solved in a in a in an organic, believable way. It can't be just too facile. You know, it can't be. <clears throat> it has like to some of the lines George threw in, I would have never done. Yeah. We got to get Barbara to the basement. Right. You know, and some of this stuff we were changed around a little bit while we were shooting. And George says, uh, uh, you know, well, you got to go to the basement now, Barbara. Oh, I'd love to go or whatever yeah. she said. Uh, some of it is just that. W- I, w- I wouldn't have written that and I didn't write that. You know, it's just too facile. But the yeah. film rises above its um, its shortcomings in, in those there, yeah, there's you know, so much more because, that's entertaining and yeah. amazing to, to so, over. over yeah. So they're coming to get you, Barbara. Is that you or is that George? Is that uh, George, I think George had that in yeah. his in his original story. Yeah. And, so, I, and I kept it in. But um, a lot of the argument stuff was my parents argued a lot. <laughs> fought a lot. That's awesome. You know, police, police awesome. in the house and phones ripped out of the wall and all that. That's how we grew up. And they would say things like, you know... We might not enjoy living together, but dying together isn't going to solve anything, <laughs> you know. And, you know, arguments in a tough mill town, or you know, I you actually, know the, this your house. <laughs> yeah, the, the dialogue between no. the, the the couple mm-hmm. is great. I that, that's um, that's it, pretty much real. Yeah, well, stuff. and you can tell. I mean, yeah. that's I, I was actually focusing on that the other night, and that was one of the things I was going to ask you about, John. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's mm-hmm. that's. You know, that's scary dialogue. I mean, that's realistic dialogue from mm-hmm. the troubles. I mean, I grew up the son of, you know, a steel worker and, mm-hmm. a, and a wife, and those were incredibly real conversations that yeah. you put on film. So, I, Well, it, any of that stuff, like yeah. I said, the, any once those people got upstairs, I not only rewrote the first half, but then I wrote the second half yeah. myself. So that kind of stuff all came for me, you know. Well, see, we have a, I mean, as the ninth story and, and 
the podcast being about stories and storytelling, we have a lot of writers and aspiring writers that listen to the show. So, I mean, this is all great stuff because it's really interesting, at least for me as a writer, to hear kind of where these things come came from and, and you know, mm-hmm. knowing, hey, I can take my parents and use their dialogue because it's a real thing. It's a real conversation. And because it's a real conversation, it's going to help sell the supernatural element. It's going to help sell mm-hmm. the strangeness because you're grounded in reality for the characters mm-hmm. and all these weird things that are happening around them are more believable because you believe in the characters. Well, like John mm-hmm. said there before, the it's a it's the theme. It's yeah. that's what you need to focus on. Right. And you build all your characters around that. And and one of the things I was going to say before, I remember reading this years and years ago that. Um, I can't remember if it was critics who pointed this out or if George Lucas himself said, yeah, basically Star Wars is a retelling of The Searchers. It is. It's the same story. It's the same fundamental yep. story. Um, or the, the to your point, it's the theme. Mm-hmm. I've just written different characters and I've put it in outer space instead of in the West. That's it. That's all yeah. I did. An alien's a ghost story on a, or a monster story on a spaceship. Exactly. But, right, oh, exactly. Absolutely. But they didn't have a, a suspension of disbelief problem because once you buy into yeah. they're on a an alien planet and any kind of life form could be there. Yeah. But the gene you know, part of the genius of the, of that movie was um that incredible that monster, that shape changing monster. And we know that, you know, <laughs> Ma Moths, uh, 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 a lot of caterpillars turn into butterflies and all that kind of thing. So, and so the you know the thing grabs onto the guy's face, and then the next thing you know, it pops out in a different form, right. bursts out of his body, and you know you never know what it's going to be next and what, yeah. how what you're going to have to do to defeat it. So, and yeah. again, it's like the indomitability of the human spirit kind of thing, yeah. where where you know Sigourney Weaver going to survive and how's she going to survive and you know, even gravity's like that. Yeah. Like that same theme. Did you like gravity? Did you, I loved gravity. I thought gravity I thought was a great script film. by those two brothers was just great. There's so many, um, <clears throat> there's so much imagery in there. It's, it's almost like allegory. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The whole thing, at least for me, when I watched it, it was kind of like, she's had this tragedy in her life, mm-hmm. which has caused her to, you know, go inside herself and essentially the entire story is her rebirth Mm -hmm. and there's so much imagery in terms of like where she's floating there and she looks like she's in the womb and even to the end where she's born into water and comes out and learns to walk again when she's on the planet yeah not to spoil the movie for those that haven't seen it but it's been out there for a while well i don't think you can spoil it anyway because it's just good it's yeah it's me telling you the basic Mm -hmm. plot of it isn't going to really spoil the movie because it's i thought it was a great film uh, I, I left thinking about things, and that, to me, that's what a good movie is: is it leaves yeah. me with something where my mind is still working afterwards. Night of the Living Dead was like that. Uh, Majorettes was like that. Uh, you know, Gravity was like that. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of good movies that I gravitate to, um, and and that's what it is. They leave you with a question at the end where you're just mulling things over. Mm-hmm. Well, that's we. I think we beat zombies to death. Craig, did you have any other questions? I mean, I think I could ask John questions for the rest of the morning, but so we have to take a break. <laughs> I have one last question on this thing. Okay. Unfortunately, John, when I say one last question, that means I'm going to have like 15 other ones. But, that's okay. But the, the, the question that I had, and I apologize if we touched on this before. Again, one of the things that I, that I noted that scares me to this day 
about Night of the Living Dead is the the radio and in hearing about what's going on in the world through that. Mm-hmm. Was that was was that you from a storytelling perspective? And and I don't want to steal any thunder from the rep webinar that you did you have coming up and you know we'll, well, we'll probably we'll make, doesn't. Yeah. But, um, so did you use that as a device to drive the story along? Like oh, yeah. a, a, almost as like this is the narrator in a, mm-hmm. in, a in effect. Because we have yeah, to have somebody who's to explaining what's the going reader, on. I mean, the, the viewer watch know what's happening to some extent, yeah. even though you don't want to reveal it all in one right. one blow. But then, you know, another thing is, uh, I don't, th- I didn't even think in terms of three acts in those days. Uh, I didn't consciously think that way. And now they teach film students or script writers you know mm-hmm. think in terms of three acts right and distributors are even more crass and they'll say you got to have a dynamite 30 minutes and a dynamite <laughs> uh, in the beginning and a dynamite 30 minutes in the wrap-up and then you can mess around in the middle right <laughs> well we knew being low budget you know that we probably couldn't afford to keep going with special effects and all kinds of costly stuff if we could hook the people then then you know, then the characters could interplay in the middle, yeah. and hopefully we would do that successfully on our limited means. So then the writing has to be pretty good because people have to be involved. In and in, you know, otherwise they're gonna the movie will bog down. They'll lose interest before you even get to your wrap up. Yeah. So any device we could use, like opening it up, well, okay, what's this? Is the television gonna save them? You know, we're. Yeah, that's a new element. Now there's a TV, and that brings Harry up from the basement. All of those ingredients in that one place, you know. Well, how do we show? How do we really show that it's happening all over the place? Mm -hmm. We've said it on the radio, but it's better if people see it. So I said in that meeting, "Well, Washington D.C. is five five hours away. Let's go there." Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and we drove there with no permissions, and these now you would, oh, you know. Yeah. And I got on the phone, and I couldn't even find a real general's uniform because you couldn't get permission. I found, got that uniform from the Playhouse, Pittsburgh Playhouse had one in their costume yeah. department. Carl Hardman had the Mark IV, I think it was, and he decorated the car with a couple of flags with stars on it, and you know, and we nice. got together a group of people. And we drove down there in one day, and we shot in the scene, and we drove back. We didn't even... A couple people stayed in a motel overnight, but none of us, we didn't have much money, and we just drove down there, shot the damn thing, and drove back in one day. <laughs> but it, you know, it works. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, Russ shot the sequence, because George is a reporter in that scene, and I'm the general's driver in my old Army uniform. <laughs> okay. Nice. So, um, I mean, I'm in the movie all kinds of... I'm, yeah, you're, you, you show yeah, up frequently. Because <laughs> I did the Molotov cocktail stunt, too, because we were... Um, George and Gary and I and Vince Servinsky lived at the house because we couldn't afford security. The equipment was going to be there. Yeah. And besides, we, you know, trying to drive back and forth from Evans City and being tired, you know, and it was... <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't. We just stayed there. Filmmaking's but, not easy. Yeah, it's no. not. It's not as glamorous as some people think it is. Well, but yeah. Before we wrap up this segment, Dan, and, and mm-hmm. thanks, John. I mean, that would that was because you answered the question perfectly, and you kind of got into some of the things that I said, like. The, the reason why I still feel to this day and age, again, 45 years later, why that works is because it's just Night of the Living Dead is just it continues to be compelling storytelling. And to, to your point, 
Holly, Hollywood nowadays is, like you said, 30 minutes of this, 30 minutes of this, 30 minutes of this. And I remember a couple of years ago listening to directors cut notes of Friday the 13th where it's like every seven minutes you need to either show boobs or you need to show somebody getting killed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that's just the way things work nowadays. And that's what's yeah. unfortunate. And my point is, if you've got good writing and the film is done right and you've paced it right, you don't need that. Exactly stuff. right. Because that's the thing. You go back mm -hmm. and you watch Night of the Living Dead and it works. It's yeah. it's 45 years later. I rewatched it. Works, it. it still scares you. It scares I rewatched it last week too on, on the weekends. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what surprised me, I mean, what surprises me in every story that's a good story is I look down, I'm like, really? Has it been 30 minutes already? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's, you know, that's when you know that mm -hmm. the writer has done their job is when you lose track of time and the scoring, going back to scoring, the way you know is the, the musicians or, or whoever has done the scoring has done their job is you don't notice the music as much. Well, mm -hmm. yeah. And it, it, like, unfortunately. But you notice when it's not there. Yeah. Or you notice right. when it's wrong. The, the other night when I was watching it, I thought. If this movie was made today, there's a scene, and I can't remember, John, specifically where it is, but but Judith O'Day is on the couch and, mm -hmm. and Ben's there. And I'm like, you know what? If this movie was made, the music would change and Ben would be over trying to make it with her. <laughs> that, that's, that's just the way things would go this now in in modern society that's yeah. right because you have to have a you, you've got to you know people feel mm -hmm. compelled to work that in there to keep everybody's attention but you know dan and i disagree with that all the time it's yeah. if the story is good enough the writing is good yep. enough you're going to hold people's attention mm -hmm. you don't need those silly devices you exactly. just need good storytelling devices right that's all. i have one last question for you before we wrap up for this one if you were making that film today what would you do differently? What would you take advantage of in terms of the technology and the the media and everything that's out there available for filmmakers? Uh, well, you can do a lot more a lot easier. Mm -hmm. And um, we, we tried it with the remake in 1990 where we had a lot more money. Right. <laughs> and there, for various reasons, it wasn't as successful as we wanted it to be. Mm. But one thing we did want to do when we made the original film, we wanted some big wide shots. We, you know, we didn't want it to all be, you know, just a few color trend lights. And mm -hmm. so we did shoot day for night on the escape. You know, you have a you right. have a wide shot of uh, the truck heading for the pumps, and day for night never really works. Even in John Wayne westerns, you know, it, <laughs> you can tell. You're right. <laughs> so we didn't use much of it, but we had the big condors and everything yeah. on the remake, and there were a lot of really great shots that didn't get into the movie. I argued with George on that, but because George had the idea that if you saw, if you saw six zombies in front of the house, and then you had things happen, and you go back outside, well, to me, there could be eight of them. Yeah. You know, but he he said, you know, people aren't going to buy it that there's six there one time. Well, they move around. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. You know, and don't. Two more I, I throw out all those great shots. We had fabulous shots. Yeah. But that's what happened there. And I, I would probably, uh, you know, that's a small matter, but you don't want to mess with it too much. Right. Those kinds of things I, I would do. I think he had a good idea making Barbara, her character arc different. Yeah, because we only we we f didn't know if we could get a good ingenue for the barber role, and <laughs> there weren't that many 
actors back then. They were avocational. They could get off for a day or two to do a TV spot, but to mm -hmm. get off for two weeks and right. do a movie that we didn't know if we could get a good Barbara. So if, yeah. she, if she were if she became catatonic, there wouldn't be such a big demand on the actress. And <laughs> right. instead, she was pretty good and put a lot of energy into the role. And yeah, you, you got know, lucky so with she that. was kind of she was underwritten in that sense. So it was a good idea to. Um, you know, give give her a, a, a bigger, a, a different character arc, and let her finally take charge and fight back. Yeah. What's your favorite line from the movie? Uh, well, the two lines Is that it, are well, so uh, famous uh, that everybody uh, wants to hear. Well, that's the one. That was my line. <laughs> you heard me do that because sometimes I do it. They asked George Cassandra to do their dead. They're all messed up. Or. <laughs> You know that kind of thing, and Russ to do. Uh, they're coming to get you, Barbara. And then I, and then sometimes I ask them, "You want to hear my line? What's the matter with you? Don't you want to hear my line? What line?" Ah! <laughs> 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 so, but uh, anyway, that as far as favorite lines, I don't usually pick favorites about anything. Yeah. I always say that's a kid's game. <clears throat> Strawberry. They're all your favorites. Chocolate. You know. I mean. I'm, I'm not like somebody yesterday asked me a guy in a bar what's my favorite Sinatra song well I don't it have depends a favorite on your mood. did you say the Sinatra. one I'm listening to right now yeah they're, <laughs> they're really uh, there's so many great songs right. yeah. why do I have to pick a favorite it's ridiculous right. I, I, yeah I mean I think that depends on my mood people ask me what my favorite movie is that can change by the day mm -hmm. and, and what my mood is I have a lot of movies I like in every kind of genre you know yeah so uh, that's as far as I go with it. I liked Alien. I liked uh, Forbidden Planet. I liked uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original. Yeah, the original. You know, I liked absolutely. Uh, the World War. I like William Wyler's. Uh, you know, the best years of our lives. And since you went away, those are great films. Yeah, I like <laughs> Good and Bad, the Ugly. Oh, that's I a great like, one too. I love uh, Pulp Fiction and the Reservoir Dogs yeah. and um, Goodfellas and Casino. Yeah, I know Quentin Tarantino is a big fan of yours. Your book helped him finish his movie. Well, that's what he said. Yeah, yeah. when I met I'm him sure at it's the true. Land of the Dead premiere. Yeah. So that's a real good quote from. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Two-time Oscar. Winner. All right, folks. Well, that is a wrap for episode number 26 of the Ninth Story Podcast. I just want to thank everyone for tuning in and supporting the show. Please do go rate us over in iTunes. Look for Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes' Facebook page. She posts something new for us every week. And I hope you guys are all enjoying Jessica's content. She's been posting some great stuff out there. Join us next week for episode number 27. It is the season finale of season one of The Ninth Story. So we got some special stuff in store for you. We have a couple special guests due to come in the studio. We had such a great time talking to John, and he was so forthcoming, answered so many questions for us, and just a fun guy to have in the studio. So we do have a little more from his visit with us that we want to share with you next week. And again, we have a couple of special guests in the studio that I think you guys will really enjoy, especially if you're a fan of the genre. listening to the Ninth Story Podcast, a hicks and fabulous production.